Amen. All right. It's good to be back with you guys. Um, if you have a Bible, go to uh, the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. So we're, we're talking about just the basic uh, spiritual disciplines of the Christian life and how we can grow in our relationship with Christ. And we talked about reading the Bible last night. That's the number one, we said, number one predictor of spiritual growth is reading the Bible. Today, this morning, I want to first start by talking about prayer, which I would say, I think, is probably the second uh, biggest indicator. Now, this is, you know, we're, we're in March now, and we're, we're kind of moving fast through the new year, but this is the time of year, right? January is the time of year when people make New Year's resolutions about different ways to improve their life. And most of those resolutions are, are pretty common resolutions, right? I want to lose weight. I want to start working out. Uh, maybe I want to quit smoking. I want to learn something new this year that I have not learned before. All these different things that people uh, kind of do is say, I'm gonna, it's going to be a new year, new me. I, I want to improve my life. And so I'm either going to eat right or exercise or quit some habit that's really harmful to me. Uh, that's what I'm going to do this year to be a better person. And the question I, I want to ask is, what is the common denominator in all of those different resolutions that people make? What's the common denominator that's going to make those resolutions successful, that's going to make those people improve their lives this year? And the answer is discipline. That's the common factor. If you're going to quit smoking, you got to be disciplined. If you're going to eat right, you got to be disciplined to you know, not pick up potato chips at 10 o'clock at night when you're sitting on the couch. If you're going to exercise, you got to be disciplined to like get out of bed in the morning and, and do it in enough time before you got to shower and get ready for work. Like it's going to require saying no to some things and saying yes to some things. And, and it's going to be, it's going to require even the discipline to be consistent, to continually do it and to not quit by January 21st. Right? So, so discipline is kind of the common denominator in all of these things in terms of in terms of self-improvement. The problem is that discipline has, has kind of become a bad word in our culture, right? So that if somebody in our culture is talking about a parent or a teacher or a coach, and they say that parent, that coach, that teacher is a disciplinarian, is that a compliment or is that a criticism typically in our culture? It's a criticism, right? He, he is a disciplinarian, or she is a disciplinarian, which means, you know, they're, they're, they're not kind, they're not gracious. That's, that's uh, that kind of threw me off there for a second. I was like, the, the spirit's blowing in here, right? I mean, uh, um, anyways, um, sorry. Uh, but that's, that's become a bad, a bad thing in our culture. But the truth is, and, and those of us as Christians should know, that, that discipline is actually a good thing, right? That Parents who love their children will discipline them. And that coaches that want to get the best out of their players will, will discipline them to, to work out and to do the things they need to do uh, to be the best athletes that they can. Kids' behavior will not change without their parents disciplining them, okay? And you won't be healthy without you disciplining your eating habits and your working out ha habits, okay? So discipline is an absolutely necessary thing. A team is not going to win if they don't discipline themselves to practice, and to take care of their bodies, and, and, and to learn the plays, and to each player to learn his role, they're, they're not going to win. And I um, was talking with, with Ron earlier this morning, saw his, his Patriots hat, and so it, it, it reminded me of Tom Brady this year, and I know Tom Brady in, in Tennessee is probably not the, 
you know, everybody's favorite quarterback. But I don't – I was always more of a Manning guy myself. But at, at some point, I just had to throw up my hands and say, I mean, dude is great. He's a great quarterback, and there's just no – there's just no fighting it. One of the most amazing things to me about Brady is that he, he's 39 this year, had one of the best years of his career, okay? And all kinds of reasons why that's happening, okay? Coach, he has, system he has, uh, the franchise, all those things. But one of the reasons why Tom Brady had the best year of his life is because of how strictly he disciplines himself, okay? I don't know if you know uh, or ever read, I read an article about this. He has a very meticulous diet, okay? He, he drinks no alcohol, he uses no iodized salt on his food, okay? I don't even know what that would look like, okay? He, he eats no white sugar at all, okay? So, I mean, a very meticulous diet. He's in bed by 9 p.m. every night, same time every night. He goes to bed at the same time. He's up at the same time early every morning without an alarm clock. He's conditioned himself to go to bed at the same time and to wake up without even having to have the assistance of an alarm clock. He works out two times a day on vacation. Not like normal life. On vacation, he works out two times a day. And so he does all that. He disciplines himself in those ways. Why? To be the best player that he can be. So the same thing is true in our lives as Christians. There are spiritual disciplines that we that we need to engage in, that we need to to, to discipline, have the self-control to engage in in order to improve. That's true for us spiritually. Uh, one of the great books, I, I had to read it when I was a junior in high school, and I would encourage you to read if you, if you want to learn more about spiritual disciplines, is just uh, Don Whitney's Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Okay, I read that one as a junior in high school, so it's, I mean, it's been out 20 years. But he just walks through the basic and practical, um, kind of lays out the practicalities of, of engaging these basic spiritual disciplines, like reading your Bible, praying, right, uh, serving in the church, giving, fasting, all these things that are going to help you grow in your relationship with the Lord. And what I want to do, started last night, and then what I'm going to do today is, is talk about the, the, the ones that I think are the two most essential in terms of growing in your relationship with Christ, and that's Bible reading and prayer. And just at a base level, I think we all understand this, you cannot develop any relationship that you have without talking to the person and listening to the person. Okay, did you hear that, husbands? Okay, you cannot develop any relationship that you have without talking to the person, actively talking to the person, and actively listening to the person. For you to grow in your relationship with your wife, actively talk to her, and you need to actively listen, not sitting in you know the lazy boy watching Sports Center and just giving one word, yeah, 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 honey. Um, like look her in the face, right? Put down the phone, turn off, turn down the the TV, and and look at her and talk to her. Uh, that's the only way you're going to grow in your relationship with your wife. When my wife and I are apart, when I, when I travel, I'm out of town, there's an expectation that I'm going to call and tell her how things are going and ask her how things are going for her. It's not an expectation of duty. It's an expectation of love. I want to hear from her, and she wants to hear from me. And the same thing is true in our relationship with God. And so if you're going to develop a relationship with God, you have to listen to him, read his word, and you have to talk to him by praying to him. Now, let me just give kind of a moment of, of self-confession. Whenever I take stock of my life spiritually, whenever I assess how I'm doing spiritually, there's always two areas of my life that I find very deficient, no matter what. I always find I'm not doing well there, and I can always do better. 
And those two areas are evangelism. I always think I can share my faith more than I do. And prayer. I always feel like my prayer life is deficient. And I don't know if you, if you have that uh, same, um, just same kind of awareness in your own life. Most Christians pray less than five minutes a day, okay? So probably most of us in this room pray less than five minutes a day. Now, let me ask the question, how would that go with your wife if you talked to her less than five minutes a day? And I don't just mean like, you know, would she get upset and, and, and like, would that help you grow in your relationship with your wife? Would that help you cultivate romance and communication and love and all those things? No, obviously it wouldn't, it wouldn't help you at all. And yet most of us pray less than five minutes a day. I don't tell you that to make you feel guilty. I just, I just am saying, let's all be aware that this is a difficulty. For those of us who are men, men are, most men are uh, action-oriented and feel like there's, there's, you know, and task-oriented rather than being people-oriented. And so I, I wake up in the morning and I, first thing I'm thinking about is the, the boxes that I've got to check off, all the things I've got to do that day to be successful in my job to be successful in my career, okay? And, and I just, again, just personal confession, taking time to pray that I'm not gonna be using that time to, to accomplishing all these tasks that I've got to accomplish seems like, can seem like a waste of time, okay? And so that, I think men face that kind of thing. It's like, yeah, I, I know that prayer is good and I need, I need to pray, but there's all these things I've got to do and I'm so busy how am I going to be able to do it? And yet Jesus and, and great men of God throughout the, the, the history of the church have said, you're never going to accomplish the things for God that you need to accomplish unless you spend a, a significant amount of time in prayer. And so what I want us to do is just, is just to ask the question, how can we uh, improve our prayer lives? What, what can we do um, to, to learn more about prayer and how to do it? And, uh, and thankfully, Jesus gives us the answer to that question in Matthew chapter 6. He, he, he addresses this question specifically, okay? So go to um, Matthew chapter 6 and verse, let, let's start in verse 7 and we'll read down through verse 15, okay? Just to give us the context. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7 and we'll read down through verse 15. I, I think I gave nine, so we'll, we'll read the two. If you don't have a Bible, the words that are here, um, the first two verses will, will not be on there, but here's what Jesus says. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgiven, have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Okay, so let's ask this question. How, how do we pray? How do we pray? The first thing Jesus does in verses 7 and 8 is tell us how not to pray. Okay, so he gives the negative before he gives the positive. And, and here's, here's what's going on. And um, Matt mentioned this uh, last night in terms of that, that song we're singing about um, building our, our, the foundation of our life on Jesus. So he referenced the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6 is, is part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, where Jesus is describing here um, righteousness. Jesus is describing the ethic of the kingdom, what the kingdom life looks like, okay, for those who, who follow Jesus. 
But here's the deal, because the problem for, for most Christians and the problem for most people in America is that we think righteousness boils down to actions, okay? We think it's either you act righteous or you don't act righteous, that, that you can look at somebody's behavior and determine by their behavior whether or not they are righteous. The striking thing is that Jesus, as he is describing the life of the kingdom and as he is describing the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness, he describes two groups of people, the Pharisees and those who are genuine followers of Jesus, and he describes them as people who do the exact same things. Their behavior looks the exact same. Jesus expects that both the Pharisees and the true follower of God will pray. He expects that both the Pharisee and the true follower of Christ will give money to the poor. He expects that both the Pharisee and the true follower of Christ will fast. He expects that, that both of them will do the exact same behavior. The difference between righteousness and unrighteousness is not the behavior. It's the motive behind the behavior. He says, when you pray, are you praying to get the approval of men or are you praying so that you can get the approval of God? Are, when, you, when you fast, are you fasting so that you can get the approval of men or so that you can get the approval of God? When you give money to the poor, are you doing that so that you can get the approval of men or so that you can get the approval of God? That's the difference between the righteous and the self-righteous. It's not the behavior. It is the motive. So, so guys, let me ask you a question. What is more important to you? And, and really take, take you know, assessment of your heart here. What is more important to you? To be godly or to have people think that you are godly? Which one is more important? To be godly or to have people think that you are godly? Because both of those may look like the exact same action. And I've been in ministry now for almost 20 years. Uh, and I've seen this. I've seen as I've gone in and out of church life, People that everybody in the church thinks are very super spiritual people, that when you get to know them, you find out they are arrogant and they are jerks, okay? But they look spiritual, but they're not actually spiritual. And so guys, do you want to actually be godly? If you do, then Jesus says, don't pray and don't do the things that you do for God in order to be seen by men, okay? He's not saying that, you know, and, and some people take this and, and, and um, kind of run the other you know, direction, kind of the extreme on this. And so they'll, you know, they'll say, well, I, I don't ever give in church, you know, because I don't want people to see me, you know, putting money in the plate or whatever. And I don't, I don't know how y'all do it here. So, I, I mean, I'm not, Matt didn't tell me to talk about giving or anything like that. Okay. So, I'm, um, so people will run the other direction. Jesus isn't saying never pray out loud. Jesus isn't saying never pray in front of people. He's saying, what's the motive behind it. What, what are you after here? Okay. And so here's how you pray. Instead of doing the way that the Pharisees do it, here's, here's how you pray. Okay. And he gives us um, what, you know, some people call the Lord's Prayer or, or is called the model prayer. I hear that um, I'm sure many of us, maybe even some of you prayed this before you, you know, went out, uh, took the field in your high school football game. Okay. Uh, and so this is a, um, a common prayer that Jesus tells us how to pray. This prayer isn't magical, okay? This isn't some magical prayer that you repeat uh, so that, you know, God will do something for you. Luke's version uh, of Jesus giving the model prayer is different from Matthew's version, okay? So this is Jesus just giving us a framework for how to pray. And I, I think there's about five things that we need to think through uh, in, in terms of how we pray, and you should see this on the screen. The first thing is 
that prayer should be about adoration, okay? Adoration. Jesus' prayer begins with adoration, okay? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And Jesus' prayer ends with adoration, okay? That's, that's where you begin and that's where you end is you begin with adoration and you end with adoration, okay? So it, it begins with our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and it ends with you are the one who needs to deliver us from the evil one so that you get so that you get the glory okay so start your prayers by spending time praising god now again most of us don't pray and don't pray very long and even when we do pray that's not typically how we pray when we come i think that most christians most and most americans who even those who aren't christians who claim that they pray all the time I think most of us approach prayer kind of in the same way that, that Dorothy and the Scarecrow approach going to see the Wizard of Oz, right? There's this big, powerful being. I've got some need in my life, something that I need to happen. And there's this big, powerful being out there who can grant my request. And so I'm going to go to him, and I'm going to ask for what I need, and I'm going to hope that he gives it to me. And I think that's most people spend their, their time in prayer on supplication, on petitions that, that, that are going to benefit them or somebody that they love, okay? Somebody who's sick or hurting or financial concern or whatever it is. We spend most of our time in prayer on ourselves. And Jesus says, no, 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 you should start your time uh, in, you should start your time by, by focusing on God, praising God, right? And this is in the, the, the version I have, but, um, and also the, the, the common version in the in the King James ends with right for, for yours is the, the power and the glory and the King, you know, forever. Uh, so again, it's beginning with praise, ending with praise. Um, and so we don't typically, I think, spend most of our time on, um, on this specific, you know, part of it uh, on focusing on God, his praise, his, his worship, our gratefulness to him for what he has done. Okay. So, uh, that's where Jesus says that we need to start. We need to start by by praising God. Instead of focusing on ourselves, focus on God. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that here uh, in just a second. So a couple of ways that you can adore him. First is, is adoring him, praising him for his nearness, right? He says, our Father. That's how you start prayer. Our Father uh, in heaven. You, you're praising him for his nearness. God is the Father of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And you are his sons and daughter. So he is near to us in the same way that any one of us who are dads, if our child was in distress and was, and was screaming out, calling for us to come help them, we would do it, right? We would, we would hear their voice and we would go and we would, we would help them, we would rescue them. That's the same way that we scream, that we cry out to God uh, and he hears us. And so in the same way that with our children, we, right, I mean, Jesus says this in other places, like which one of us, uh, if our if our son asks us for bread, we'd give him a stone. You know what I mean? Jesus is like, even, even fallen, depraved parents give good gifts to their children. And so how much more our Heavenly Father uh, with us? And so you don't need to try to manipulate your father. You just, you just come humbly as a child who recognizes your father loves you and, and you ask for what you need uh, for him and you, 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 you express your love and your gratitude to him. Uh, that's what he's getting at, the verses I read in, in verses 7 and 8. Um, about the manipulation, where he's saying the, the pagans, when they pray, they use empty phrases, they, they repeat words over and over again, because they think that the way that they pray, the words specifically that they say, is going to, by, the, by saying and repeating those phrases, going to kind of 
ensure some reaction from God or some answer from God that they want. And that's, that's paganism. That's manipulation, thinking that God's going to answer me the way I want because of the way I'm doing it, okay? I, I'm reminded of this from, from time to time about how even Christians can fall into this kind of paganistic idea that, that we can manipulate God to doing what we want. From time to time, this has happened about three times in my life, I receive in the mail, uh, and it's not because of any mailing list I'm on, I've received in the mail a prayer rug, okay? It's a, it's a paper prayer rug that fits into a, an envelope. And you, you un, I don't know if any of you guys have ever done this, had this happen to you, but I, so I pull it out, and the prayer rug is, is folded into like fours, and so I, I unfold it, and it's a picture of Jesus' face, or what people think Jesus' face is, with a crown of thorns around, and there's a letter that accompanies it, and what it tells me to do is that, that what I'm supposed to do is take this prayer rug, put it on the ground. First of all, I'm sorry, let me back up. Letter says this. Take the prayer rug, you look at it. Jesus' eyes are closed in the, on the prayer rug. It says you look at the prayer rug until Jesus' eyes open, Okay? And then when his eyes open, you put the prayer rug down, you put your knees on Jesus' face, and whatever you pray for, he's going to give you. And the letter also gives a testimony of a lady in Iowa who asked for $47,000, and Jesus gave her $47,000, okay? Oh, and also the address of the ministry, in case I want to send money to them, that's also in there. Um, now, that's that's pagan. I mean, that's paganism, right? I mean, that's just, that's magic. That's, that's not Christianity. That's not what Christianity is about. The problem is that I think even, even though for us, we wouldn't try to manipulate God by using some prayer rug, but there are ways that people try to manipulate God. And I'm not trying to, 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 to unnecessarily step on any toes here, but let me just, um, one of the things that I've witnessed in terms of the, the ways that people think some of this is just the way people are taught, I think, and what they saw modeled. One of the things I've noticed is that, like, people who, would, who have never, ever in their life, in terms of their normal, everyday conversation, use the King James English, when they start praying, all of a sudden they, they become fluent in these and thous and ending every other word with, right, haveth and giveth and, you know, all of a sudden bountiful is a word that they start using, right? I mean, um, and so... Because I think they think that, that by being more reverent in that moment, that like, I, I want to understand in, in people's hearts, probably they think they're being more glorifying and reverent in that moment by using the King James English. Uh, but also I think some people think that that's the way that you get God to answer you, okay? Or the, again, the way that you talk, the way that you say things, you think that's, that's going to ensure some answer from God. And Jesus is saying, no, he's your father. You're his child. You talk to him like a son would talk to his father, and you just— tell him you love him and you tell him what you need and he's going to answer you. That's, that's a reason for adoration. He, he's, a, he's a father who is near and who is ready to act uh, on behalf of his children. You also praise him for his transcendence, right? Our father in heaven. So he's near and yet he is also transcendent, okay? Don Carson said that modern Christians find it very difficult to delight in the privilege of addressing the sovereign of the universe as father because we have lost the heritage that emphasizes God's transcendence, right? So now you've got people walking around with t-shirts that say, you know, Jesus is my homeboy, right? And so it's very difficult for a generation of people who, who have walked around with Jesus as my homeboy to, to understand, no, he's transcendent, right? Ecclesiastes, 
He's in heaven, you're on earth, let your words be few. He is so far above you. So it is a privilege to address the sovereign creator and savior of the universe as dad, as father. Okay, so he is, he is transcendent. Praise him um, because of his nearness, but also praise him because of his, his sovereign, glorious transcendence. Okay, praise him for who he is, right? That, that he is familiar to us, but he is other than us. Praise him for what he's done. He's saved you. He's provided for you. He's forgiven you, okay? So praise him for who he is, for what he's done. And you don't just praise him, though. Go, go to that, that petition there. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, okay? So you don't just praise him. You ask him in prayer. You make a request of him in prayer that he would cause his name to be praised. That's what it means when he says, hallowed be your name. He's asking Lord, the Lord, Lord, you make your name holy on the earth. You cause this to happen. Okay, you cause you, you ask him to cause his name to be praised. You ask him to make his name holy. Okay, to spread his praise to the ends of the earth. So you do, Lord, whatever it is that you have to do in my life to, to make sure that your name is holy. And you do whatever it is in my marriage, in my family, my church, to ensure that your name is seen as holy. And you do whatever you have to do in, in our city, in our nation, our world, to make sure that your name is praised as holy. Okay, so, again, you start with focusing on God, focusing adoration on God. In fact, there are six petitions in the Lord's Prayer, okay? Six different petitions that Jesus mentions uh, here. First one is, hallowed be your name. Second one is, your kingdom come. The third one is, your will be done. The fourth one is, give us this day our daily bread. The fifth one is, to forgive us our debts. And the sixth one is, to lead us not into temptation. Okay, so there's, there's six petitions. And most people have traditionally broken the six petitions out into, into two groups of three. Okay, so the first three are petitions that focus on God. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. The second three are petitions that focus on us. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us. Lead us not into temptation. Okay, and that's a good, that's a good division, right? And so first half of your prayer, good idea to have the first half of your prayer being focused on God, His name, His glory, His mission in the world. And have the second half of your prayer focus on you and people you love and the petitions and things that you need. Okay, but John Piper has said, as, he, as he's reflected on this, that it's, it's appropriate to break them out into three and three, okay? Three focused on God, three focused on man. But, but Piper says that the first thing you need to do is to break them out into one and five, okay? He says the first petition is the most important petition because all of the other petitions serve the first petition, okay? And so what does he mean by that? He says the first petition is the priority because everything else serves it, okay? God's kingdom comes on earth. Why? so that his name is shown as holy. And, and God's will is done on earth the way that it's done. God's, God's will is perfectly done in heaven by every creature that is in heaven. Perfectly do the will of God to the glory of God. And so you're praying, God, let your will be done here among us right now the way the angels do it in heaven. Why? So that your name is made holy. And, and you're asking for bread. Why? 
God, provide this bread for us so that you're magnified. And God, forgive our sins. Show us your mercy. Why? So that you get the glory because we can't forgive ourselves. And don't lead us into temptation and don't lead us into these sins that are going to destroy us. Why? Because you're the only one who can do it and you're the only one who gets the credit for it. Okay? So everything else is serving this, the glory and the majesty of God. Okay? So the first thing is, is to focus on adoration, to focus on God himself. Here's the second thing. How do we pray? You, you pray for salvation, okay? And salvation of the world specifically. He, the second petition is your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So glorify yourself by causing your saving rule to extend all over the earth the way that it is in heaven right now, okay? That's what you're praying for when you pray your kingdom come. And there's a submission here, right? There's a submission here of your will to God's will. You're not coming to a genie. You're not coming to the Wizard of Oz asking for the things that you need and, and, and just hoping or demanding that God give them to you. You are coming to the sovereign creator and savior who loves you more than you love yourself, who knows better than you know what is best for you. And so in that recognition, you are bending your will to his will and saying, Lord, this is what I'm asking for, but at the end of the day, I recognize you love me more than I can love myself, and you know what's right for me. And so whatever it is that is right here, not only give it to me, but help me to receive it as good. Okay, That's what you're doing here as you're submitting your will to God's will. You want his will to be done above your will because you know that his will is ultimately best. Okay, So we understand this as fathers, right? If my children come to me at breakfast and say, Daddy, I want ice cream, and I give them eggs instead— Am I being a bad dad? Or if my kids come to me 10 o'clock at night before bed and say, Daddy, I want a Coke, and I give them a glass of water, am I being a bad dad? Or am I being a good dad? Right? So my children can ask things from me that they think they need and that they think they want, and I may give them something that's different. I'm answering their request. I'm giving them something that's different than what they asked for. The reason why I'm doing it is not because I don't love them. It's because, precisely because I do love them. And I recognize if my son, my three-year-old son, drinks a Coke right before bed, it's going to be a disaster, right? I mean, this is not, it's not going to go well. And then I'll probably lose my temper and it's going to cause, you know, my witness to go out the door. And so, uh, no, we, we understand, God, we're, if, if I'm asking you, right, if, if, if I'm asking somebody for, um, for bread, you know, and they, they give me, they give me a, you know, a, a piece of meat instead, that's not, that's not them being evil to me or, I mean, God, God answers your request in the way that he knows is best for you, for him, for his plan for the world. And so your primary desire outside of God getting the glory that is due him is the advancement of his kingdom, which means submitting your will to the will of the father. Now, a reminder here too, that in this passage, all of these pronouns here are plural pronouns, right? He doesn't say, give me my daily bread, forgive me my trespasses. He says, our, us. This is, this is a prayer that has the world on its, on its heart, not just you and your own life and your own little, um, you know, circumstances that are going on. It's the, you bring a heart for the entire world into your prayer closet. And so at the end of the day, you want God's name 
to be exalted now the way it will on the last day, right? At the end of the age, God's name will be praised and magnified every, at every single place on earth the way it is praised right now in heaven. And so you're asking, Lord, do that now. There are places around the world. I don't know if you all have international mission partnerships or, or, or what, but there, there are places, there's places here in Hartsville. There's places in America. There's places all over the world. Uh, in Israel and n- you know, North Africa and North Korea and there are places in the world where God is not worshipped the way that he deserves. And so you're asking God, bring your kingdom there so that you're praised the way that you deserve to be praised. So pray for God's salvation in your life, your family, your school, your community, and uh, our nation and all nations. Okay, so first half, all about God. That's where prayer starts. Second half, is about our needs, so don't don't mix those up. Uh, prayer isn't first about us; it's about God's glory. Okay, and and I kind of feel like this uh, in prayer is kind of like what he says later about laying up treasures in heaven, right? And Jesus says, "Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things that you're concerned about will be added to you." That's kind of the way I feel about prayer: seek His glory first in prayer, and the provision and the forgiveness and and those things will be added to you. <laughs> Okay, but this is this is where you start. Okay, but now you do move into to genuinely asking the sovereign creator for help in your life. And he, as the sovereign creator, who is also your father, delights to bend down and to help his creatures and to help his children. Okay, so that's the the, the next three things that we see. The third way that you pray is you ask for provision. Okay, so he says, God, Give us this day our daily bread. Okay, ask God to meet your physical needs. And this, this covers all f- physical needs, food, health, finances. Uh, this, this covers all of them. And he says that you ask for this daily. Okay, now, when he uses the phrase daily bread, all the Jews who are listening to Jesus say this, what would their minds have been brought back to? Right, manna, okay? So in the wilderness... As they're traveling from Egypt to the promised land, every day bread from heaven comes out of the sky, okay? And what happens at the end of the day to that bread? Do you, do you remember what happens at the end of the day to that bread? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's filled with maggots, okay? And so what God's saying is, he says, listen, gather up enough bread for your family for, your family for today and trust that when you wake up tomorrow, there's going to be new bread on the ground. Okay, because if you try to store it up, if you don't trust me and you try to store it up to make sure you're safe for tomorrow, it's all going to be ruined. It's all going to be gone. So he's teaching them and he tells them why he's doing this. In Deuteronomy 8, he says, the reason why I let you hunger in the wilderness and the reason why I gave you manna from heaven, just just enough for that day and then and then enough for the Sabbath on on Friday. Right. So the reason why I did that is because I'm bringing you into a land where you're going to have plenty. And when you get to that land of plenty, the tendency of the human heart is that you're going to forget me and you're going to think you did this yourself. And I'm teaching you now to depend upon me so that when you have plenty, you will still depend upon me and recognize this has come from my hand, which is exactly what they fail to do, okay? And exactly what we fail to do, right? It's when our life goes to crap that all of a sudden our prayer life begins to increase. And when our life's good, we think we got this, our prayer life's not what it needs to be. And so he's, he's reminding the people here, Jesus saying, this is a daily thing where you recognize I am dependent upon God for my physical provision. I am dependent upon him. No matter, even the, even the ability to work is a gift from God. You recognize that, right? Not everybody has the physical ability to work. Okay. Remember in my church when he was 16, 
uh, had debilitating things going on where basically most of his intestines had to be taken out. He almost died. And so he is, he is confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. He has to get up to get ready for church at 3 a.m. on Sunday morning just to get there at 8.30 for the service, okay? He cannot work. So the ability to work is a gift that has been given to you by God. So recognize that. Recognize this. This is the thing, too. We have such, we have such scientific notions, right? Um, we think to be nourished, I've got to eat and I've got to drink. When I'm sick to get well, I've got to take medicine, right? For me to be healthy, I need to, I need to lift weights and I need to run and work out, okay? Do you realize that if God, if God in heaven didn't activate the food that you're eating to nourish your body, your body wouldn't be nourished. If God, like, people take medicine all the time. Some die, some stay alive. What's the common denominator for those who die and those who, who remain alive? God chooses for them to stay alive. Okay? So even the, like, when you're taking medicine, when you're taking, when you're eating food and you're drinking, you're praying, you're recognizing, God, provide this for me and cause this to nourish me. Cause this to heal me. That's what you're praying uh, when you ask for your daily needs, okay? So, most of us, I think, leave our petitions at this one, at, at the asking for physical provision, okay? But that's what dominates our thinking. But there are spiritual needs that we have that we sometimes fail to recognize. And those are the last two things that Jesus gets into. So, number four, ask uh, or confess sins, confession, okay? He says, Forgive us our debts as we also for, have forgiven our debtors. Okay, so forgive our sins. So this is a recognition that in your prayer life, you need, to, you need to confess your sins to God. Name them. Not just say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. Name them. Okay, whatever they may be. Lust, bitterness, greed, laziness, whatever, whatever it may be that you're struggling with. You name those sins. You ask God to forgive and 1 John 1, 9 says, you ask for it, he's going to give it to you. He's going to forgive you, okay? Jesus assumes here, as he's talking about the model prayer, Jesus assumes that this is a daily need, not an occasional need. This is a daily need, not an occasional need. Every single day, you are going to need to wake up and you are going to need to confess sins. You're going to need to ask God to reveal to you sins that you have that you don't even know about, that you're not even aware of. Okay, sins like, you know, doing things for the glory that comes from man rather than for the glory that comes from God, or whatever it is. I mean, so this is a daily need. We need to ask uh, God to forgive our sins, and we need to forgive others. Now, he does say, and this, is a, this may raise a, an important question, verses 14 and 15. If, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, let me ask a question, okay? group participation. What will happen to you ultimately if God doesn't forgive your sins? What will happen? It's an easy answer. You'll go to hell, right? If you don't have God's forgiveness, you'll go to hell. And so Jesus says, it seems like Jesus says here that God's forgiveness of you is conditioned upon you forgiving other people. Okay, so let's ask the question. Is he saying here that you've got to be a good person to go to heaven? Is that what he's saying? Is he saying here so you need the forgiveness of Jesus to go to heaven. You need the forgiveness of God to go to heaven. But if you don't forgive other people, then, then, then you're not going to receive the forgiveness of God in heaven. So is he saying that your bitterness and unforgiveness 
is a sin that is too big for God to forgive. Is that what he's saying? No. What he's saying is, let me ask, okay, let me ask another question. What is the response required of the, of, of the human heart? What is the response that God requires of us to be forgiven and to go to heaven when we die? What is the response? What is it? Human, the human response. I'm sorry, I didn't hear what the, the word that was said. Believe. Repent and believe, right? That's, the, that's the, the response that God requires of the human heart, okay? So what Jesus is saying here, he's not saying you've got to be a good person to go to heaven. He's not saying that your unforgiveness is, is like the unpardonable sin that God just can never forgive. What he's saying is the heart that refuses to forgive people who have wronged it is the heart that does not believe in Jesus. He's saying you lack faith. That's the problem. The problem isn't that the sin is too big for God to forgive. The, the problem is that it reveals a heart that is not trusted in God. Okay, you say, why would you say that? Well, forgiveness boils down to faith, okay? It boils down to faith. Faith in the justice of God and faith in the cross of Christ. Here's the deal. Bottom line, the people that have sinned against you in your life, there, there's two possibilities. Either the person that sinned against you is an unbeliever. If they are an unbeliever, they will go to hell and pay for the sin they commit against you and all the sins they commit against God for eternity. And God doesn't need your help with that one bit. So if you refuse to forgive that person, that lost person who sinned against you, what you're saying is, God, I don't believe that you're just. And I don't believe that you're going to hold them accountable for this sin. Okay? That's a lack of faith. It's not about effort. It's a lack of faith. The second possibility is that the person who wronged you is a believer. And if you withhold forgiveness from a believer, what you're saying is, well, I believe that the cross of Christ is enough to forgive my sins, but it's not enough to forgive the sins that have been committed against me. Because whatever sin that Christian did to you, Jesus paid for that with his dying breaths, okay? And so it's a lack of faith that would cause you to, for, to refuse to forgive somebody. Because either that person's going to pay in hell or Jesus paid for it at the cross and God doesn't need your help with that, okay? So it's the heart of faith that not only asks God for forgiveness and believes that it will receive it, but that also forgives those who have, have wronged you. And so we need, to, we need to confess our sins. And then finally, uh, we need to ask for protection, okay? And I, I do think that the New King James, the King James translation is the better one here. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, okay? Deliver us from Satan, from the evil one. So he's saying, deliver us from the temptation to sin, and from Satan, who is the one who entices us the way that he enticed, tried to entice Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, okay? So this is what you're praying every day. You're praying, help me to fight against my desire to sin today, against my proclivities uh, to sin. Help me to recognize I'm helpless in this battle, and that if, if you don't help me by your spirit, Jesus, then I'm going to be defeated. This is what we, we recognize. Again, what precedes Matthew 5 and 6, the Sermon on the Mount, is Matthew 4, the temptation of Jesus. The temptation of Jesus, Jesus proved I'm the one who can overcome the temptation of Satan. Not you, I'm the one who does that. And so I'm the only one who can deliver you from the temptation of the evil one. And so ask me for it. Ask me for it every single day. And I'm the one who imparts to you the spirit so that you can help, so you can fight against sin in your life. And then he ends with the doxology, right? Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. So let me wrap, let me wrap it up by saying this. John Piper said this, which is, which is an interesting statement. 
Piper said, prayer makes things happen that wouldn't happen if we didn't pray. Now, that's quite a statement, especially coming from John Piper. Prayer makes things happen that wouldn't happen if we didn't pray. So here's what he's saying. There's nobody who's written on the sovereignty of God more than John Piper. So God is sovereign. He's in control of everything that's happening. He has a plan, and he will make sure that his plan comes to fruition. Okay? We understand that. But this mystery may be profound, but it is true. Prayer makes things happen that wouldn't happen if we didn't pray. We see this throughout the Bible. God tells a king, you're going to die. He prays to God. God says, okay, I'll give you 10 more years. How do we reconcile this with the sovereign you know, plan of God? I don't know. Outside of knowing that, that God is sovereign enough not just to ordain the end, but the means. And he says, the means by which people get saved is you opening your mouth and sharing the gospel. And the means by which I act in the world is you opening your mouth and praying. And as you do that, prayer makes things happen that wouldn't otherwise happen. And so Piper says, believer who does not avail himself of the power of participating with the sovereign God of the universe and making things happen that wouldn't otherwise happen is a fool. A fool. Okay? Prayer makes things happen that wouldn't happen if we didn't pray. And so he says, he concludes, prayer is God's invitation to participate in his sovereign rule of the universe. And so what, what better way could we spend our time than spending our time in prayer to God? Uh, because it makes things happen. It, people are saved who wouldn't have been saved otherwise. You say, how do you reconcile that with all the things the Bible said? I don't know. But prayer makes things happen that wouldn't happen otherwise. People that wouldn't be saved, people that wouldn't be healed because they didn't go to their elders and ask for them to anoint their head with oil and pray for healing. Okay, Missionaries that wouldn't be sent if the church at Antioch wasn't fasting and praying for God's, you know, to move by His Spirit. Okay, so prayer makes things happen that wouldn't happen otherwise. There are people all around you and your family and this community who don't know Christ, who are sick and dying, who have some kind of need that needs to be met. And, and one of the ways that those are, things are going to happen is by you getting on your knees and praying for God to make those things happen. Okay, so let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you first of all for the privilege of being able to call you Father. Thank you for the incredible, incredible gift of being adopted into your family, being able to call on your name and to recognize that you hear us and that you answer us. We don't deserve that. You, you don't owe us that. And yet you, you show your glory by doing that. And so we thank you. Father, we, we ask that you would help us to be men of prayer. So many great men of the past who were used by you in mighty ways were first men of prayer. And so, Lord, we ask that you would, you would make us men of prayer, for first of all, for the sake of your glory, second of all, for the sake of our, our, our wives and our children and our, our friends and our communities and the world. So, Father, we ask, one, that you would magnify your name in our lives. We ask, second, that you would use us in the advancement of your kingdom to the ends of the earth. Father, we do ask that you would provide for us the things that we need in order to, to be involved in that kingdom work. We pray that you'd forgive us because we are desperate for your forgiveness. 
And we pray that you would help us to fight against sin and to fight against the evil one. We pray all these things that you would get the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.